From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in education. Today, in partnership with Phi Delta Kappen Magazine, we're looking at educational resources and equity. How do schools and students in need fare compared to their more advantaged counterparts? And what can be done to close persistent gaps in vital areas like funding, teacher quality, and external support? So policymakers at every level need to be looking at which schools have the fewest resources overall, which schools have the fewest partners, and how can we make these individual connections between these schools that have the greatest need and the partners who have the most resources? Those questions drive the May 2019 issue of Kappen Magazine, and today we speak with contributing writer and Harvard University researcher Ebony Bridwell-Mitchell. She joins CPRI senior researcher Rand Quinn to discuss her new Kappen article, Them That's Got, and a recent study showing that school partnerships can leave some of the neediest schools behind. The big idea here is that those schools that start off with certain advantages end up having advantages in the long run. The schools that are out ahead are going to pull ahead even further. That's right now on Research Minutes. My name is Rand Quinn. I'm an Associate Professor of Education at the University of Pennsylvania and a Senior Researcher at CIPRI, the Consortium for Policy Research and Education. Today, I'm happy to be speaking with Dr. Ebony Bridwell-Mitchell, Associate Professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Ebony is a widely respected scholar working in a range of areas, including school leadership, management, and reform. It's a pleasure to have you here, Ebony. Thanks, Rand, um, for this opportunity to have a conversation. I'm excited to talk about school partnerships. I'm also excited about this conversation as well. And we're talking about, or we will be talking about your new article, Them That's Got, How School Partnerships Can Perpetuate Inequalities. And this is published in the May 2019 issue of Phi Delta Cap and Magazine. This article is based on an academic paper of yours published in 2017 in AERJ, the American Educational Research Journal, and the title of the AERJ paper is Them That's Got, How Tie Formation and Partnership Networks Gives High Schools Differential Access to Social Capital. To start, how about telling us a little bit about the inspiration for the title of your article, Them That's Got. This is from Billie Holiday's God Bless the Child. That's exactly right. Um, One of the things I love about the work that I do is that I get to study social phenomenon, which means it's not just kind of experiences that academics see or are privy to, but it's the kind of experiences all of us have in our everyday lives. For me, this title is a way to capture the kind of everyday experiences people have that sociologists sometimes talk about as the Matthew effect. Meeting Those that are wealthy tend to increase their wealth over time, and those that have less wealth often lose it. And while that's something that sociologist Robert Merton kind of has become well known for characterizing, kind of this blues song by Billie Holiday captures the exact same idea, I think, through the lens of the experiences most of us have on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what were you seeking to accomplish with your research study? What question did you set out to answer? If we know that it's important for schools to have access to resources, if we know partnerships play an important role in the sector, the question that I'm always interested in is, well, what can organizational dynamics, what we know from the study of organizations, 
help us understand about how schools gain access to resources and how they might form partnerships. Mm -hmm. So why don't we start by giving our listeners some context on the school partnership movement in the United States? Yeah, um, I always love to kind of talk about the broad historical context for the work that I'm doing. But oftentimes, um, I think kind of my own story is really illuminating in terms of these broader historical patterns. And what I'm thinking about in particular is when I was working as a sixth grade teacher in East New York, which is a very poor neighborhood in New York City. And I recognized right away that my students didn't have access to a lot of the resources I took for granted when I was going to school, kind of in a Montessori school in the Midwest. And so right away, I asked myself, kind of, what can I do to try and get resources to my students? And I started to make a list, like, what are the organizations in this community that can help me help my students with school supplies, that can provide them with internships or access to the professions, that can maybe offer them recreational activities. And that same train of thought around what resources are out there in the community to help students is the same kind of train of thought or line of thinking that has been in the education sector since as early as the 1940s, at least in New York City, when the New York City Youth Board was founded to try and connect schools to local communities. Um, and then more formally, um, in 1988, the Congress passed the Educational Partnerships Act, which was designed specifically um, to encourage schools to partner with private and nonprofit organizations. Um, the idea being that if we could somehow connect business and nonprofits to educationally disadvantaged students, then we might actually be able to support them. Um, and then finally, and most recently with No Child Left Behind, um, the push for partnerships increased pretty dramatically. So these are partnerships with nonprofit or community organizations, but you're also uh, under this idea of school partnership. It's also local businesses and for-profit partners. Exactly. Um, nonprofits, but also kind of organizations that we might think about as like political organizations, community organizations, universities, colleges, especially in my study, where the data came from was basically schools listing the different kinds of partnerships that they had, meaning listing in a report that they had to make to the New York City Department of Education every year. And the list of partners they indicated were wide ranging. And one of the most unique that I still remember to this day is Bobby Brown Cosmetics. And I thought to myself, hmm, what was that partnership for? Uh, but there were a wide range of them. So a core concept for your study is that of social capital. What is social capital and what do we know about its role in schools and in education? So one reason social capital is important is because it really helps illustrate this idea about how important it is to think about the kind of social context in which people are operating and how much their relationship both constrain or enable certain actions and outcomes for them. But then more specifically, social capital is an important idea because it basically describes what we all already have a sense of, and that's that relationships are important conduits for resources. And in resources, at least in my field, refers to a wide range of resources, ones that researchers refer to as cognitive. So this idea of information or expertise or advice but also some of these resources can be social resources, like being able to confer legitimacy on someone, being able to 
invest in trusting relationships. Also, though, these resources can be material, like things that are tangible, like time and space and money. And we typically understand social capital from a social networks perspective. And when you, in your study, are looking at school partnerships and the relationships between schools and organizations, nonprofit businesses, and the like, this is essentially a, a, a network study. Is that, is that correct? I think that's right. And um, one way to think about social networks is really to keep remembering that Social capital is all about relationships, and social networks are a way to think about the patterns that exist in people's relationships. And social network analysis, which is a technique that I use in this study, is really a way to kind of make more concrete what those patterns are, because once you can make those patterns in relationships concrete, you can start to make some predictions about people's behaviors and what different outcomes will be. It's part of the reason Facebook is such a popular platform. It also kind of relies on this way of looking at patterns in people's relationships to make certain predictions about people's behaviors and about outcomes more broadly. Mm -hmm. So talk a bit about your study and the context and data that you use to understand school partnerships. Yeah, um, it's funny because when I started this study, uh, meaning collecting data for it initially, um, it was before people started talking about big data. And this study, the data for it, is in no way big data with respect to the way we understand it today. It's 1.3 million observations, which is a lot from the perspective of how we usually or how sociologists often approach looking at certain problems. But those 1.3 million observations are really just what I was able to see when I asked myself, if I look at every single high school in New York City, um, and if I look at every single possible partnership that could exist between those high schools and other organizations, and I looked at all the possible combinations, that would tell you what partnerships actually exist but what partnerships could exist but didn't. And when you look at all of those partnerships, both potential and actual, you can see this pattern emerge in terms of who has relationships and who doesn't, who has more relationships and who doesn't, which ones of these schools seem to be in the center of the action, meaning it's easier for them to get to lots of different partners, which ones seem to be more peripheral. Um, And so it's really my looking at this pattern of relationships between schools and these partner organizations that lets me draw some conclusions about how those patterns might matter for the partnerships that schools might have in the first place, the partnerships that may emerge over time or in the future, and then also thinking about how those partnerships might change over the course of the study, which was from 1999, the 1999-2000 school year to the 2004-2005 school year. Mm-hmm. And before you started your analysis, did you have a hunch or a sense of what you were expecting to find? Well, I will say um, I did have a pretty strong hunch because from the perspective of researchers who study social capital and social networks, um, there's a pretty broad consensus that the pattern in this network plays a pretty big role 
in the behaviors of people and in their outcomes. And so in this case, um, that means we can look at, as I did, different characteristics of schools. So for example, how many of their teachers are experienced or what proportion of students come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Those are important school characteristics, but what we know from social networks is that even with those characteristics, which will matter for schools getting partnerships, what probably also matters is the pattern or the overall structure in the network of those partnerships. So returning to the title, them that's got in the the Matthew effect that you talked about earlier. Share with us your findings. What did your study conclude? Yeah, so um, basically the approach that I took was to try and compare different school factors. So things like, is there a new principal? Things like, um, as I mentioned, what proportion of the teachers are experienced? Compare factors like that to factors in the social network. So for example, how densely tied or how many overlapping relationships do there appear to be between schools and potential partners? Um, and what I found um, is actually pretty inconsistent with the theory of action we have for school partnerships. The idea of school partnerships is that those schools that are most in need of resources would somehow accrue those resources from the community. But in fact, what my research shows is that oftentimes those schools that are already pretty well advantaged in terms of resources tend to be the ones that have more partnerships. Um, so in this case, um, the big idea here is that what Billy Holiday and uh, admittedly Robert Burton have helped us see, which is that those schools that start off with certain advantages end up having advantages in the long run. So it's not so much the entrepreneurial nature of the teachers or the principals as much as it is these network characteristics. Well, I do want to be clear. Um, in my study, I do look at does having a new principal which you might think of as kind of a motivating factor. You're a new principal, you're in there, you want to make relationships, much like the story I told about myself as a new teacher. And it is the case that having a new principal increases the likelihood that a school will have a partner. So this kind of motivation and agency does indeed matter. Schools with a new principal were 27% more likely to have partners. So I don't want to suggest it doesn't matter. What I do want to make clear is that every single social network characteristic had a bigger effect than that. So that means thinking about, in fact, the biggest factor was schools having had relationships in the past. So if you've had a partner in the past, you're much more likely to have a partner. If you've had a partner in the past, you're much more likely to have a partner in the future. If you're one of those schools in the center of the network, like I was describing, you're much more likely to have a partner. If you don't have to compete with lots of other schools for the same partner, you're much more likely to have a partner. And if you're in a network where lots of other schools and partners are tied to each other, so there's an easier way to access the partner you might want, you're also more likely to have a partner. So for me, quite honestly, one of the most important ideas of this paper is how it illustrates this balance between choice and constraint, between action and opportunity. So the social 
network is a way to explain the opportunities that exist. And of course, once you have access to certain opportunities, it's your job or responsibility to try and take action to seize those opportunities. But this paper shows not everyone has access to the same opportunities. To what extent is this phenomenon increasing inequity, or at least maintaining inequality? Yeah, um, that's an important question that um, I have been spending a lot of time thinking about. And I think the right way to think about it is to imagine, if you wanted to imagine, schools starting at the same, let's say, starting line in a race. And this isn't even a perfect analogy because some schools are already out ahead at the start of the race. But what this study shows is that the schools that are out ahead are going to pull ahead even further. So that means the schools that are left behind, it's not so much that they're being kept down or worse off than they otherwise would have been. It means they're falling farther and farther behind because other schools are pulling further ahead more quickly. So if I'm a teacher in an under-resourced school community, a school that maybe doesn't have prior partnerships or is peripheral to the network, what are some strategies that I can do or that my principal can do to help narrow that, that gap or to help generate partnerships? Yeah. So um, I think this is a super important question about what can individuals do. And I actually think the answer to that is less about what an individual teacher or principal can do. My study shows that does matter. Their actions do matter. But it's more about what actors at higher or individuals in a district or the state can do to try and facilitate these relationships. Because my research suggests Left to their own devices, think back to me as the eager young teacher wanting to help my students, I will be able to make some ties, but I won't have access to the vast majority of ties and maybe not even the best ones. So I need someone in a district office at the state education agency, basically being a bridge between my school and those partners who are out there that might meet my students' needs. So I would partly argue that part of the job for principals and teachers is to advocate on behalf of their schools for more support in trying to reach out to partner organizations or even having partner organizations reach out to the schools. This is more of a systemic or policy issue in addition to whatever local kinds of activities and agency that m- might, might be occurring at the school level. Undeniably, like I think the 1988 Educational Partnership Act is a great idea. It's something that made it clear that schools need these resources and the community has an important role to play. But it was only one step in an important series of steps that need to be taken. And the series includes schools stepping up to try and take advantage of community resources. But another step is looking at system level actors who can actually help build these relationships in ways that the schools and teachers and principals may not be able to do on their own. Has there been an opportunity for 
the New York uh, Department of Ed or other policymakers, superintendents, district officials to react to your study or to start thinking about ways to improve the, the situation? Yeah. So interestingly, not in New York City, but I did have, I've had more than one conversation with state education agencies about this study because an increasingly popular practice and a good one um, is to start betting partners for schools to work with. Um, And one of the things my study suggests is that, well, this is a good idea. Let's have the best partners for schools to pick from. But what it also means is that of a thousand possible partners schools might pursue, that gets narrowed down to 50. So that means lots of schools are competing for the same 50 partnerships which is one of the factors, high competition, that my study shows that some schools will win out, there, but on average, having to compete with other schools for a desired partner, on average, that has a negative effect on partnerships. So policymakers at every level really are going to have to be much more targeted in terms of thinking about how to help certain schools get partners. They need to be looking at which schools are, have the least resources? Which schools have the fewest resources overall? Which schools have the fewest partners? And how can we make these individual connections between these schools that have the greatest need and the partners who have the most resources that are the best fit for those schools' needs? Well, thank you so much, Ebony, for sharing your scholarship with us. This is an incredibly timely and important article. And we encourage our listeners to go read the full piece. It's titled, Them That's Got, How School Partnerships Can Perpetuate Inequalities in the May 2019 issue of Phi Delta Kappa Magazine. Dr. Ebony Bridwell-Mitchell, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate again this conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. To learn more about today's topic, pick up the May 2019 issue of Kappen Magazine, titled Educational Resources and Equity, now available in print and online at kappenonline.org. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to the series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's c-p-r-e-hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at cprehub.org.